Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Organ and Tissue Donation in partnership with Donate Life. I'm your host, Michael Billings, and my guest today is John Lowe. John joins me to tell his wife Louise's story. Louise passed away from a brain aneurysm, but because of a conversation she'd had with John, her organs went to a staggering amount of people. The number will amaze you. But before I get to that, I want to remind you that I do this podcast in the hope that after listening, you'll do two things. Sign up to become an organ donor at donatelife.gov.au and talk to your family about your desire to become an organ donor. Both these things are just as important as each other and just one organ or tissue donor can transform the lives of many people. I'll remind you at the end of the episode, but for now, here's John Lowe. John, thank you so much for joining me today. This can't be an easy story to tell, mate. Um, you're more than welcome, Michael. Um, I guess it's probably become easier over time. Tell me a bit about your wife, Louise. Um, so Louise was a very intelligent uh, young lady. She was finishing her psychology degree or had finished it and was starting to do her doctorate in Melbourne and she'd been teaching one day and then unfortunately um, suffered a massive brain aneurysm but her entire life was about helping people and wanting to help people so in some respects losing her enabled her to continue that which was just you know just Louise everybody would have said that was just Louise. We'll get to the day she passed away and her organ donation journey a little later in our chat, but she was also a mother, two kids. Yep. So she had two boys and they're both adults now, but they weren't at the time. Um, so they're my stepsons. Adored them. They were her life and and it was vice versa. They were absolutely everything to her. Um, I came a distant third, I used to joke about. <laughs> yeah, I've got two kids. I know the feeling of being the third and I'm fine with it and I'm sure you're the same. Yeah. Right, look, if you're coming third to two children, you'll accept that every day of the week. Tell me about the day she passed away. She didn't actually pass away on the day that it occurred, um, but the day that she suffered the massive brain aneurysm, uh, she'd been teaching. She was walking back to her car in the car park and basically felt a pop or heard a pop in her head knew something was wrong because obviously because of her psychology studies and obviously studying anatomy, she knew this was very different and something was wrong. She rang me. I was at a work conference. I guess the long story short was that she was clearly upset, not herself, um, and in a significant amount of pain. Um, But I'd never been to where she was. I'd never been to that location. And where she parked a car was sort of a supermarket shopping centre car park. So I couldn't get there and didn't know where to find her. So I just said, look, I will get you somehow, but you need to ring an ambulance. So she managed to do that, even though she didn't want to hang up. I got a work colleague to drive me to her and rang her back along the way. So we talked the entire time. By the time I got there, the ambulance were there. Um, She'd never lost consciousness and the ambulance just didn't know what was going wrong they as they said to me they didn't quite understand things they weren't quite normal Um, but you know that's that can be quite routine for them things just don't look normal so we got her to the Dandenong hospital she went into the just the normal emergency room and was um, had the initial triage they were concerned things weren't right so they said look we need to get some scans obviously and see what's going on Uh, while we were waiting for her to be collected she's basically had another episode and she's crashed basically into my arms. I've screamed at the nurse. She's come over, hit the alarm and basically all hell broke loose. There's no other way to put it. 
Leading up to her collapsing, what was going through your mind at the time? Like, had you grasped the seriousness of it, I guess? I, I understand that obviously you knew this was serious, but probably not, oh my God, my wife's life is in danger serious. Definitely not that serious. And, I, and I'm a police officer, so I've been to some, obviously some very serious incidents over my career. The fact that she'd never lost consciousness, she was in pain and she wasn't in a mood for talking, but her eyes never closed. Um, she'd maintained consciousness. She was able to talk to the doctors and, and obviously the ambos earlier. So I was worried, but not at any stage up to that, uh, till that point there when she had the other episode, the second episode, as I'll call it. I never thought this is life-threatening. I just thought this is not good, but we're okay and we're in the right place. But the second episode, as I found out later, was basically the aneurysm um, hitting her again. Um, and letting loose. Tell me what happened after the second episode. So, yeah, the nurse has run over. She's hit the emergency buttons. The doctors have come over. They've then, because they realise something's not right, because she pretty much lost consciousness at that stage, they've moved her into a more private area within the ER department. They kept me out of there for quite a while. So I didn't see what was going on. But obviously, again, with my occupation, that's when you know this is not good and this is not normal. They weren't panicking, obviously. They were doing their job, but you knew this is beyond the normal ER treatment. There's something they're seriously concerned about. So it's one of those instances where you do lose track of time. And I don't know how long it was before they came and got me to come in and allowed me just to sit in the corner for a little while. By that stage, she's intubated and drifting in and out of consciousness. Now, when she was drifting into consciousness, it wasn't a full-on consciousness at all. And at one stage, I'm pretty sure it was a doctor, came over and said, do you want to come and look at her and, and talk to her? And I said, please. So I went over there and I was looking at her knowing this is quite serious, things are not right. And her eyes were barely open, but they were. she was looking at me. I know at that stage that that's when I said the last words that I think she ever heard. And it was, I, I simply said, I love you, please don't go. They were the last words ever said to her. I just knew things were dire. As I'm saying that, her eyes closed and, to my knowledge, um, they never opened again. Because Dandenong Hospital doesn't have a neurosurgeon, uh, they got the scans done but immediately got her transferred to the De- um, from Dandenong Hospital to the Monash Medical Centre for the neurosurgeon. At this point, has any doctor said to you that she might not make it? Not at that stage, but as she was being put into the ambulance, I was looking at her but also looking around, and I know that look that the doctors and nurses had, and they didn't have to say a word. I knew that she might not make it, and that was in my head right at that point in time because I know that look, um, and I've probably had that look on my face before when I've been to bad scenes um, as a police officer. So you do you do get to know that look, which is not not good and not normal, but I knew what that look was and that's what they were, you know, unintentionally, um, they had that look. Now, her sons at the time were 11 and 17. Yep. At what point do you get them in the loop? Um, so I think I'd already rang um, Louise's parents prior to her being put into the ambulance and, you know, I'm going on memory here. It happened in 2014. So I'm pretty sure I rang them because it was getting later in the afternoon. I knew the boys, um, particularly the 11-year-old, needed to be picked up from school. So I'd got 
friends to do that. But it also rang Louise's parents to say, this is what's happening and I need you to please come down to Melbourne. Um, they live about an hour outside of Melbourne to help with the boys, but also to get them, all of them, to the hospital. So, you know, I couldn't contact the boys, either of the boys, because neither of them had a mobile phone at that stage. So, yeah, I made sure friends and that got onto them and looked after them and obviously the family. Um, and then then I went to the Monash Medical Centre, you know, following following on, didn't, you know, didn't go directly behind the ambulance because they were going at speed. Um, but, yeah, I followed them down there. Um, and then on arrival there, I met with a neurosurgeon who gave me an update. And what was that update? Um, so the simple thing was, um, as soon as Louise had arrived, they'd taken her in for further scans. Um, they really wanted to have a look at the latest aspects of what they knew were occurring. At that stage, they knew she'd had an aneurysm. So the aneurysm had obviously let go. Um, that's what happened when she was going to a car. Um, the neurosurgeon then told me, look, when she collapsed into my arms at Dandenong Hospital, he said that's where the aneurysm has actually let loose again. And he said at that stage they believed that it may have happened a third time en route between the two hospitals. And he said we've had three major bleeds. His bedside manner was wonderful considering what he had to tell me. I you know, could never fault him in what he said. But he very politely said, look, we are going to take Louise in for surgery but even before we go in there, it's not looking very good. He said, we know there's already been um, some significant brain damage. And he said, it now will just depend on what we find when we get in there and how bad it, it actually is. But he said, look, you need to probably be prepared that the woman you knew is not going to be the same woman if she gets through this. And, and I remember saying if she gets through it. So they take her in for surgery. What's going through your head at this point? Because I'm picturing you on your own at the hospital while your wife is going in for surgery. There was very much a feeling of isolation, but I also had got on to, at some stage, I think I might have rung my friend while I was in my car, my, my best friend, my best, my best man at our wedding, and said, um, this is going on, I need help. So uh, him and his wife raced to the hospital and um, met me there. I, I was probably still alone, though, for about an hour, and it was just... I know numbness, a feeling of dread. You, there's probably 20 million things going through your head, but it's just this question that you want answered, but you can't get an answer for. And at the same time, you're thinking the absolute worst. You're thinking, I've just lost the love of my life. I've just lost my wife. So, yeah, that's, that's what was coming through my head at that stage that I can recall. How long was she in surgery? Um, so from memory, the surgery was only supposed to be around two hours from what the neurosurgeon told me beforehand. I've got a feeling it was close to double that. I think it was probably three and a half hours before I saw him. By that stage, though, um, my best friend and his wife had shown up. Um, Louise's parents and the boys had shown up and we just had to wait. And then when the neurosurgeon came out after the surgery, uh, again, bedside manner was um, wonderful, but he just he clearly said, um, it's very bad, really, really bad. And he said something along the lines of, if you believe in miracles, um, that's probably the only thing you can do and pray if you believe in that. We don't expect her to come through this, but you just don't know how things will turn out in the morning, but we'll see, which was, I guess, how I was probably expecting it to go. 
Um, but then having to be with Louise's parents and an 11, 17-year-old and trying to explain that and be involved in it at the same time, it just wasn't easy. How do you explain that to an 11 and a 17-year-old that mum might not be coming home? I'm not sure how I explained it. And, I, I, you know, I can't say whether I did a good, bad or otherwise job of it. The one thing I remember is explaining what the neurosurgeon had explained to me, what had occurred without trying to get too medical because you've got an 11-year-old. Um, the 17-year-old, um, extremely intelligent. So he would have understood it all and potentially even to a higher degree than I do. Um, but, yeah, trying to explain it to the 11-year-old, it's it was the simple things. Um, Mum's had an aneurysm. This is basically what an aneurysm means and explaining that, you know, the blood is leaking into the cavity and, and in essence, just destroying Louise's brain. Um, and crushing it so and keeping it as simple as if it doesn't look good because the one thing in my occupation and I told the boys from the day I'd first met them um, don't lie so I wasn't going to lie to them and it was there's a very real opportunity here that um, mummy's not going to make it um, but we'll see so the surgeon tells you to hope for the best in the morning. What happens the next morning? By the time we got up and then got back to the hospital, it was about 8am, nothing had changed. And then I think we all just took turns sitting with Louise. Um, I was making a number of phone calls at that stage to her very close friends to let them know what had happened. And if they, um, if they wanted to, they could come down to the hospital. Early-ish in the morning... So we might have been there an hour or so. The doctor came around and basically gave us an update. Look, and, and the simple update was there has been absolutely no change and her brain functionality um, was pretty much minimal and he said that can't recover. And it was, um, I think it was basically the simple, the aspect was it is now just a matter of time. Um, he said those, you know, the, the primary functions of the brain that, you know, make you breathe and keep your heart beating. He said they are still operating, but at some point they are going to stop. At what point does Donate Life approach you about organ donation? So this is where I know our situation um, was different because before Louise, when Louise and I had met, we talked about a lot of things. And just by chance, one of them was about organ donation and what our wishes were. So we both had a very intimate knowledge of what each other wanted if something was to happen. Um, Again, I guess because of my occupation, as soon as I realised at some stage during the day, um, and while she was still breathing on her own, I knew she wasn't going to come out of this. Nobody from the hospital actually got a chance to approach me because I'd already made the approach with one of the nurses and got directions to where the staff were that handled the organ donation from the hospital side. So I went and approached them and knocked on the door and said, this is what's happening. I need to get this rolling now because I know that's what Louise's wishes were. And I am now a lot more fully informed about organ donation and the timeframes and all that. But at the time, I'm thinking I need to get on this early and hopefully allow Louise the best opportunity she could have to help others because that's who she was. That's exactly who Louise was and that's exactly what she would have wanted. So in those circumstances, 
that whole situation got kicked off earlier than it normally would have because normally it wouldn't have been until Louise was officially pronounced deceased that that would have kicked in, but I got it going earlier. So because you'd had the conversation with her already, it made the process easier for you and them. There was no having to weigh anything up because you you knew her wishes. Absolutely. Yeah, there was not a skerrick of doubt in my mind that that's what Louise wanted and that's what was going to happen. I'd already had a private conversation with Louise's parents, her sister and the two boys about this is what I'm doing and this is what Louise's wishes were. Now, her parents and her sister also knew that um, Louise uh, was a registered organ donor. Um, Nobody was against it. Um, Everybody was fully supportive of it. But, yeah, it was just, hey, we're doing this and this is what she wants. Were they surprised to have you knock on their door? I'm guessing that doesn't happen real often. Um. I don't know. I I know um, that it was Gavin who I spoke to at the Monash Medical Centre at the time. I haven't seen him for a very long time. I would assume he would have been a little bit surprised that, yeah, someone's approached him beforehand, but it never showed and he was just wonderful. He's so professional, um, so caring, which was probably the, the biggest thing out of the lot, just their care about Louise. More than anybody else about Louise, that was their primary thing the whole way through that whole process. As much as they were there for us, you could just tell we are here for Louise and we're doing everything for Louise that Louise would want. And it was just that I was her voice. They do do an absolutely amazing job. Do you know how many people's lives Louise's organs changed? Yes, so... Um, through Louise's organ donation, she saved six lives. And then there are also um, other aspects of the donation where she, the last time I checked, I think there was a further 23 people that she'd been able to positively impact their lives. Wow. Those are absolutely amazing numbers. Now, I don't want to say, does does that make it easier? Because that's that's not what I'm trying to get across about losing your wife, of course. But do those numbers just make you smile a little bit and think, you know, she would have liked that? Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, by the time I found out about the extra 23, I guess, the, the original six, you, you find that out very early on. Um, and, you know, I'm talking a few months, but you do find that out relatively early in the piece that, hey, Louise passed away, but she saved six lives. There's no joy in that because Louise has passed away, but there's definitely this feeling of, positivity towards the other families and it's pure positivity it's just like I'm so glad that she was able to do that it was probably 18 months after Louise had passed I actually found out about the full impact with the other 23 that made me happy knowing that there's a six that she saved and 23 others that's when that true hey I'm just so happy that so many people have had a positive impact on their lives and Louise gave that to them because otherwise, who knows what happens to those people. Now, I know you've actually received letters from some of the people that received Louise's organs through the Donate Life program. Tell me what it's like to read one of those letters for the first time. The first time? The first time's hard. So I I do really love the way um, Donate Life do it in that it's a double envelope. So the actual letter's inside an envelope and then that's inside an envelope with a covering letter from Donut Life to explain, hey, there is a letter here from a family. It's up to you whether you want to open it and when you open it. I needed to open it straight away 
but I um, was scared at the same time about what it might, might say and the emotions because emotions were still pretty raw, obviously. And, yeah, there was lots of tears reading it, but it just reinforced the decision Louise had made and I, to this day, state it was her decision. She was the organ donor, not me. I just, as I said before, I was her voice that allowed that to happen. That's all I did. I just said this is what she wants. But, yeah, there, there was a lot of, a lot of um, emotions occurring when I first read that, that first letter, um, and particularly because that one was a young boy that, you know, she'd saved. Uh, his parents had written the letter to us, and they basically said that. They couldn't thank our family enough and thank Louise enough for saving their son. So, yeah, you, you are reliving a, a reasonable amount of the grief because Louise is gone, but at the same time there's this overwhelming happiness for what she was able to achieve. Did you have any desire to write back? Yes, and I actually did. Um, I wrote back to both of them. And then the following year I got another letter from the little boy's parents just as, a, as an update along with a picture. They sent us a picture of a drawing he'd done, which was just just wonderful. John, thank you so much for sharing yours and Louise's story. It's phenomenal. Like you said, six lives saved, 23 lives enhanced in various ways. It's an amazing legacy she leaves behind. I just want to ask you one more question. It's what I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. What would you say to someone who was considering or wasn't sure about signing up to be an organ donor? The thing I I want someone to do is just have a good think about what they could achieve when their time's up with us. And that's going to be different for every person. I'd obviously love it if everybody signed up, but I think that's unrealistic. I just want everybody to discuss it with their family and friends and loved ones. Find out what it means, you know, if you are going to be an organ donor and have an opportunity, just as Louise and I did, and the two boys have. Um, The the youngest one has signed up as an organ donor even before he turned 18. Um, He just said, yep, that's what I want to happen. I just want people to be able to have that that choice and that fully informed choice and to think about, you know, if they were on the other side of it, would they want someone to help one of their loved ones or even themselves potentially survive and have a, a more enhanced life? And if the answer to that is yes, then I think from my viewpoint, you are the perfect person to be an organ donor too. The odds on being an organ donor are so minute. You know, you're talking 1%. So I, I would love everybody to do it, but it is a personal choice and I want you to have a fully informed decision to make about whether you want to sign up or not. John, it sounds like you're raising those boys to be great men. Thank you so much for bringing us Louise's story and thank you for being on the podcast. You're more than welcome, Michael. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity. What an amazing story. I do need to mention that in Australia, donor families and transplant recipients may write anonymous letters to each other and correspondence is exchanged under the oversight of Donate Life agencies and transplant units in each state and territory, ensuring there is no potentially identifying details. On the next episode, my guest will be Cody Sheehan. Cody was born with cystic fibrosis and required not one, but two organ transplants when he was still a teenager. He's one of the most optimistic and positive people I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to. I hope you'll join me, and I hope you'll make the decision to donate life. 